And in case you haven't been here the past two weeks, let me give you the Cliff Notes version of what we've talked about so far. Basically, as we've covered the life of Balaam, uh, Balak is king of Moab, and Balak has the children of Israel uh, camp in land that he used to possess. And, and they're kind of getting in his territory, so to speak. And, and King Balak begins to get nervous, because as the children of Israel have proceeded and followed God's plan, they have conquered every kingdom that they've come up against. They have conquered the Amorites and the Canaanites, and, and no doubt King Balak heard of this and, and their conquest. And so he begins to get very nervous, as they are obviously a very threatening enemy to him. And so he decides to go to Midian, and he acquires their help as well. And so now he's kind of got two nations, verse 1, and yet he still does not feel comfortable with those odds, and so he says, well, I know that if I get a man by the name of Balaam to come and curse this people and bless my people, they will stand no chance. And so that's what he does. And that man's name is Balaam. And he then sends some people there to Balaam, and, and when these people approach Balaam, they kind of make him feel special, and they say, Balaam, we need you. King Balak has specifically requested you come and you help and and you bless a certain people, and that's us, and you curse another people whose number is great, and they just came out of Egypt. You curse them, you bless us, and King Balak knows that whatever you say will happen. And Balaam, being the man that he was, said, Well, I, guys, I would love to go with you, but I can't really go against what God would have me do. If he lets me go, great. If not... Uh, then I'm sorry, I can't go. And you stay here the night, I'll go into my chambers and I'll let you know in the morning. Well, he wakes up the next morning, he says, Guys, uh, the Lord came to me last night and it was very plain. He says, Thou shalt not go with them. I can't go with you. And so uh, they return to King Balak and Balak realizes the important piece that Balaam is and he says, No, we've got to have it. So what he does is he gets more honorable princes and he sends them with rewards of divination and he says, Look, he will give you anything. In fact, if you do this, the king will owe you a personal favor. Anything you ask, he will do. And Balaam says, as I said before, guys, if he were to fill his house with gold and with silver, I cannot go against the, word of my, uh, the Lord my God. And he says, but you stay with me the evening. I'll go into my chambers and I'll ask of God what he wants me to do. And so he does. And and that night, God says, okay, before, I didn't want you to go with them at all. Now, Balaam, if in the morning you wake up and they come get you and summon you to go again, you go with them. But if they don't summon you, you shouldn't go with them. And then the Bible, almost as if to say, immediately. The Bible then transfers itself and, and progresses to the next morning. It's like a scene cut in a movie where you see the character fall asleep and then you hear the rooster crow as he wakes up. And the Bible says, And Balaam woke up in the morning and saddled his ass and was ready to go with him. And so Balaam's like waiting on the guys, almost like I said last week. He's at the breakfast table making them breakfast like, Guys, we've got a long journey ahead of us. Let's go. And, uh, and uh, that wasn't what God said at all. And so now as we have covered this part of the story... Before we launch into what we study this week, you must understand, Balaam now is out of God's will. It was God's will that he stay the first time, and because those men did not come summon him in the morning, it was God's will that he stay the second time. 
and yet we find Balaam riding the uh, 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 ass there, following these men, and so that's where we're at in the story. We pick up reading in verse 22 this week of Numbers chapter 22. The Bible says, And God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. But the angel of the Lord stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself into the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam. Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth, the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee, that thou hast smitten me these three times? Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in mine hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, Now, I want y'all to read the last word of this verse. Okay? I'm going to read it. And I want you to do your best Mr. Ed impression as you say this word. Because this is absolute comedy 101 in the Bible. There is no way you can tell me God did not have a sense of humor when he wrote this passage. So I'm going to read this verse again, and I need you to be Balaam as he responds. Now remember, you've got to do your Mr. Ed impression as well. All right, here we go. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am I not thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said... Very good. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the the time we have around your word. Lord, please help us as we study Balaam's life and how we can know if ever we do stray out of God's will. Lord, please help me, direct me in the pulpit, I ask in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. Now this evening, I want to, as last week we spoke on how to find God's will or certain attributes of how You know, certain things like, you don't have to obey God's will. Now, if you don't, it sure makes you miserable, but you're not forced to. And we we talked about other things like, nobody can decide God's will for you except you. Or, actually, we stated it like this, nobody should decide God's will for you but you. Because sometimes people do decide God's will for you. And so, we talked about many things like that. So, last week, we spoke about how Finding God's will, the appropriate way to find God's will. And the, the, the resounding statement that was said multiple times last week was this. The goal of every Christian is to find God's will, and then if you were here last week, can you help me with it? And do God's will. That's exactly right. Now this week, 
We come to where Balaam is absolutely, unquestionably, no debate or argument about it. He is out of God's will. And as I look at the passage, I see certain signs that Balaam was totally missing that should have let him know he wasn't where God wanted him to be. Now, how many of you uh, are pretty old school in how you drive? You know, if somebody gives you directions, you pay attention, and you know how you get there, you say, hey, how do you get to the McDonald's off of such and such? And they say, well, you go down to this light, and you turn right, and you take this stop sign, and you'll come to a dairy farm, and you take the left at the dairy farm, and then you go about 350 yards, it's off there to your right. Okay? How many of you enjoy those types of directions when you're given them? Okay? There's some. Brother John, I believe that with my whole heart, brother. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, there are some, and I expected that fully. Now, how many of you, when you ask, hey, where, where is this at, or what is this, uh, uh, or what's the address, how many of you, when somebody embarks to tell you those directions, kind of tune them out and realize, I have a GPS? And they say, oh, well, uh, uh, do you know how to get to the Walmart? No. Okay, well, here's how you do it. And you basically stop paying attention to them at that point because you know all you've got to do is look up Walmart on your phone and you'll be there in just a moment. And you're not being disrespectful to the person, but if you tell me to go to the dairy farm and turn right, I'm going to get that all confused because I'm looking at the cool cows, okay? So uh, I really don't pay attention to directions. I rely almost entirely on a GPS. And uh, recently I, was, uh, uh, I got a truck with a GPS in the dash. Now, if you've ever driven with a GPS, they can be super helpful and, and they'll get you right where you need to go. But how many of you have ever taken a wrong turn while following a GPS? Yeah, some of you, exactly. Now, when you're in the will of the GPS, all is great. Life is good. No women are yelling at you. But the moment you take a wrong turn, what does she say? recalculating, as if to say, are you so foolish that you don't know what 500 feet to your right is? Man, and she'll sit there, and then you'll go around, and, and, and you'll see a turn that looks kind of sketchy, like an alley that you have no desire to go down, and she's like, turn right here to get back on track, and you're like, no thanks. And so you go on down a little bit, you miss that first turn, what she say? Recalculating. Over and over until you get back on her will. Now, once you're on her will, all is good. Drive a hundred miles, take the next right, or wherever you're going. But when you're out of her will, there's a lot of screaming and a lot of yelling. If you can ignore that lady, you have no business using a GPS because it is obnoxious how many times she's, it's like she's saying, No, you're going the wrong way, you fool. As I've studied God's will in the Bible, I've learned that when a Christian does get out of God's will, if they are missing the signs that God is giving them to get back in God's will, it's because they're not looking for them. As I mentioned last week, and I believe this with my whole heart, it is not hard to find God's will. Sometimes it's harder to do God's will. And we'll reference this man tonight, but you know, in Jonah's case, it wasn't hard for him to find God's will. It was much harder for him to do God's will. But when we do take the step towards Tarshish, like Jonah did, God starts giving us all sorts of signs that says, you're not going where you need to be. 
And I want to study some of them with you tonight out of Balaam's life. First of all, we find in verse 23, when we're out of God's will, we find that plans get farther out of reach. We find that blocks and obstacles and things start to get in our way. And I want to share this with you in verse 23. The Bible says in Numbers 22, verse 23, And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. Now, it's as if the... Well, I'll give you the mental picture that I have of the Bible here. There, these men are traveling in somewhat of a caravan type of uh, uh, travel. You know, we know that Balaam himself has two servants, not to mention the honorable princes that was sent for, with ba- uh, to Balaam. So there could have been as many as ten people in this entourage, if you will, following, uh, or uh, Balaam was probably following the princess to where Balak was. And there, they were all traveling down this road, whether it's like a, a, a wagon road or a, a trail for them to be on. There they are following down the road. And, and all of a sudden, as Balaam is behind the guy in front of him, Balaam's uh, donkey there, only his donkey, begins to go way out into a field. Now, for some of you that don't have any experience with horses, this isn't a rare thing. Some horses do not like certain things. And, and we learn from the Bible, they don't like angels with fiery swords. So we know that. But, but beyond that, there's certain things that... Uh, I've been on horses that could not stand like colored gates. Like if it was an orange gate or, or, or some type of uh, thing that they weren't accustomed to, that horse would sidestep and go this way. I bet the cameraman struggled with that one. But uh, uh, I've been on horses that... And maybe you, you have some experience with this, but I, I've seen where horses have a much better sense of a smell and just like a sick sense about them of where not to go. For instance, you'll be riding a horse on a trail somewhere and then the horse will all of a sudden get real spooky and, and they won't go down the trail. And you're kicking them like, no, there's the trail. You clearly see the trail. And you'll be kicking them and, and trying to get them to go that way. Well, come to find out there's probably a snake up there. That's happened to me many a times. The horse knew something was there, and I did not know that. So the picture in the Bible is uh, all of these men traveling in a single file line in a caravan there, and then as the angel stands in the path, only Balaam's donkey goes, I don't want to go down that trail. Look in verse 23, that's what it says. The Bible says, And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. Now that way is probably a roadway or a pathway. And his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. Now I'm going to ask you a very deep question. What is the quickest way between two points? A straight line. We learn that from pretty basic school on. A straight line. Now, Balaam's donkey says, I want no part of that angel, and begins to go not in a straight line. In other words, when Balaam got out of God's will, things became more difficult on him. As he had his mind set on where to go, it seemed like it was taking him longer to get there. The journey wasn't smooth. It wasn't easy And so, uh, uh, I believe that's kind of a sign from God, this isn't the right way to go. How many of you remember the story of Jonah as God says, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh and cry against that great city? 
and, and, and Jonah uh, goes to a town called Joppa. And that town was a town that had many boats and, and, and marinas there. And he hops onto a ship. Does anybody know what the Bible says about how Jonah got there and what he did when he got to Joppa? The Bible says he, he talks to some uh, sailors there. And in order to gain passage to the other side, as he's on his way to Tarshish, the Bible says, and he paid the fare thereof. In other words, Jonah knew exactly how to get out of God's will. He knew he had a plan. In fact, how many of you have ever gone on like a trip and you go down to your bank and you get some money out of the ATM to prepare just in case you come up with any unforeseen? Jonah prepared for his trip out of God's will. Then he gets on the boat there and they get out into the ship and the Bible says God sends a great wind against the ship. That's a, a kind of a sign to Jonah. Hey, you know you're not going the right way. You know you're stepping out of my will. And what I've seen is so many Christians neglect to take certain signs from God as anything more than coincidence. I say, man, I sure thought this house buying thing was going to go a lot easier. Maybe if it's not going easy, God is shutting it down. Maybe if God is throwing certain signs in your way, maybe it's not a good thing for you to endeavor in. When we don't follow God's will, we find that our plans get further out of reach. Now, I've told the story of the boat wreck many times. I don't much care to tell it many more times because everybody loves it and laughs at me and it was a really foolish time. But I will say one thing that happened immediately after the boat wreck, as me and JT and Mandy and Brother Craig are floating out there in the middle of Lake Whitney, hugging trees, and uh, Mandy's like kind of doing the Titanic thing where she's on the boat and all of the guys are hanging on to the boat, you know. And, uh, and, and we're there and, and the wind was blowing the boat. And as the waves were crashing against the boat, now here was the problem. The waves were pushing the boat away from where the truck was. It would have been great if the wind would have been a help in this matter, but it wasn't. Now my boat is flipped upside down. Mandy's on top of the boat. Craig's there worried about Mandy. Mandy's there worried about her phone. I'm there worried about my boat. And JT's there still trying to wonder how he hung on during the whole thing. And so... We said, okay, what we'll do is we'll grab this rope. And me and JT, you know, Mandy and Craig, we, they were gone. They, Mandy looked like, uh, uh, is it David Phelps or uh, M M Michael Phelps? I can't remember. The Olympic swimmer. Michael Phelps. I don't know who David Phelps is. Singer. Singer. Yeah, that, he's a singer. He's a singer. Okay. Hey, man. Hey, man, that was good. Anyway, uh, so uh, there he is. Uh, there we are. And we say, we're going to pull the boat to the bank where the truck is and figure it out when we get there. So me, I grab onto this rope and JT grabs onto the rope and we're swimming. And we're swimming. And we're swimming for what seems like forever only to realize we're actually going the wrong way. Even though we're trying to head towards the truck, guess what was happening? The winds and the waves were pushing us backwards. So you know what we did? We tied the boat to the tree that we hit and said, ah, let's forget it. Let's go get in the truck. Because there was a clear sign, you're not going to make any progress if you do it that way. 
Christian, if something in your life, you're having tremendous difficulty getting it right, maybe that's God saying, hey, this isn't my plan for you. So that's just one warning sign that we're out of God's will. Secondly, we find that pain accompanies our journey. Look in verse 25. The Bible says, And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself unto the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. Now it's the same scenario that we covered earlier, only this time the angel strategically sets itself up in a way that the, that the donkey cannot pass by. So this is actually a really good picture of it. So you have the wall on this side, which is represented by this side of the pews, and you have the wall on this side, which is represented by this side of the pews. And there the angel is, and Balaam's like, well, you see the way, let's go, donkey. And the donkey's like, I don't much want to go that way. And what happens is Balaam probably goads or, or kicks the, the donkey, and the donkey says, okay, if you're going to make me go, and the donkey slams up against the side of the wall and crushes Balaam's foot against the wall. Now, there again, if you don't have that much experience with animals and riding animals, you may not realize how powerful a horse or a donkey can be. But I have been on donkeys, or I've been on a mule that was about, I don't know, 13 and a half hands. And I was riding old Possum there, and he was taller, he was wider than he was tall. And, and I'm riding Possum there, and Possum got a little out of control. And he took me right into the tree limbs of a tree, and he nearly scraped me off that thing. I had cuts all down my back. You don't realize how powerful these animals are until you're on one. And there Balaam is, come on, donkey. And that donkey slams up against that wall and crushes Balaam's foot. You know, that's the second sign that he was out of God's will, was that whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, pain was accompanying the journey. Now, I believe that Christians will deal with pain. I'm not here to say that if, if someone falls sick in your family that you're out of God's will. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there's other people in the Bible who, when they were out of God's will, found themselves physically, spiritually, and emotionally hurting. I'm reminded of a man by the name of Elimelech. When the book of Ruth first starts out, we're not introduced to Ruth. In fact, she's not introduced till much later. The story actually hinges on a man by the name of Elimelech's decision to leave Bethlehem Judah, which is known as the house of bread, and is a perfect representation of God's perfect will. And there Elimelech is, and, and the, the, the land falls in a drought, and Elimelech says, well, we will go to Moab, which just so happens to be in our story here. He says, we'll go to Moab, and maybe we can figure this out. His wife, uh, her name was Naomi. Now, do you know what Naomi means? The name itself, it, it, it's beautiful. It means my delight. Man, if you're going to name a girl a good name, a pretty name, a, a beautiful name, Naomi's it. My delight. In fact, the very root of that word signifies sweetness and pleasantness. Now, some of you teenage boys, y'all need to start praying for Naomi. I want a girl that's sweet, I want a girl that's pleasant, and I want a good-looking one. If you get all those, you got it going on. But, but there, there, Naomi is sweet, pleasant, Man, she, she just is so, has such a pleasant disposition. Elimelech makes the decision to leave God's perfect will in Bethlehem, Judah, and go to Moab. 
while in Moab, whether you want to think that God's hand was against them or not, they're out of God's will. Malon, their son, dies. Uh, Chilion, their other son, dies. Now, their sons have married two daughters, one by the name of Ruth, who is the uh, a title holder, or the book is named after her, and then uh, Orpah, and that's not to be confused with Oprah. She didn't make the Bible, contrary to what she may think, actually. But there Ruth and Orpah are. Now Naomi is there. Uh, uh, Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion all die in a foreign land away from their people out of God's will. Now what does, what does Naomi's mean, uh, name mean? It means sweetness. It means pleasant. Now Naomi decides to return to where she knew God would bless the house of bread, Bethlehem Judah. She returns and everybody looks at her and says, Is this Naomi? Is this the pleasant one, the sweet one? Is this Naomi? And this is her words. Don't miss this. Ruth chapter 1, the Bible says, So they went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? Is this the sweet one? Is this the pleasant one? Is this the one who's so delightful? And she says this, and she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. But don't miss the lesson there. When Elimelech made the decision to leave God's will, and maybe he had a tip from a friend that, hey, yeah, God's blessing in Moab. I don't know what his reasoning was, but when they left God's perfect will, it hurt Mara, or it hurt Naomi. It wounded her spiritually. It wounded her emotionally. She felt like an outcast. She felt like there was nobody in the whole wide world that'd care for her. And so when she returns, she says, don't even call me that name. My name's not pleasant. My life's not sweet. It's not something that should be delightful. My life is bitter. That's what happens when Christians leave God's will. Uh, Unfortunately, They ignore all the signs and they say, well, I just don't know why I can't hold down a job. I just don't know why. I just, my family seems to be falling apart at the seams. My son won't talk to me. My daughter says she hates me. I don't know why all of this is going on in my life. And may I submit to you tonight, maybe you're transitioning from a Naomi to a Mara. Maybe your life outside of God's will will be filled with bitterness and angst instead of uh, pleasantfulness and delightfulness. That's what happened in her life. And that's what's happening in Balaam's life, whether he realizes it or not. Physical and spiritual pain are both taking place in his life. Not only do we find that plans get farther out of reach and and pain accompanies our journey. Thirdly, I want you to see this. We find that progress completely stops. Verse 27. Now this time the the angel of the Lord sets up in a tighter corridor. Even no matter how much Balaam wants to strike the donkey to pass by the angel, there's no way it's going to happen. It's as tight a quarters as you can imagine. In verse 27, And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she couldn't go beside him. She couldn't go around him. She fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled. 
and he smote the ass with a staff. Can you picture this? Here's this great prophet, right? What's the whole reason these guys came to get him? Well, because he has such, he's so blessed of God that he can just curse people and, and, and he can bless people and, and God listens to him. Well, he can't even control his donkey right now. And there he is trying to get his donkey to go. And I think it would be kind of funny if I was one of those honorable princes, if my, my horse or my donkey, whatever they're riding, if my, my ride is being completely okay and this prophet, if you will, his just does this. Just sits down. You know what's hard to do? Progress when you're just sitting down. And there Balaam is, as everybody else has complete capability to pass him by and go on through the corridor, there his donkey is. What in the world has happened? His life and his journey outside of God's will stopped as he knew it. And I've seen so many Christians get outside of God's will and any progress that was made, any promises that were made, they just stop. Man, how many people leave God's will for a job or leave God's will for that extra pay raise only to find out when they get out of God's will it, all the money stops coming in and the job wasn't what it was cracked up to be? And there they are, stuck in life, waiting for somebody to help them because their donkey is just sitting down. Their life isn't progressing. They have no answers. And they, like Balaam, find all their pursuits stopped. Now, we talked about Jonah as he pays the fare thereof. They get on the ship. The winds blow. And they look around and they say, whose fault is this? I mean, whose fault is it we're in this storm? And uh, they cast lots there. And it turns out it's Jonah. And Jonah pretty much readily admitted it anyway. He says, look guys, I'm a preacher and I'm not doing much preaching right now. And, and that's the problem. What do they do? They throw him over the ship's edge there. And God prepared a fish. Now, if, if Jonah had stayed in the water, there's a chance he could have, I don't think he could have swam to shore. But I do think that in an illustration purpose he would have either been getting closer to Tarshish or getting closer to Nineveh. But God prepares a fish. And it's like Jonah's life gets put on pause for three days. We don't know where the fish went. All we know is Jonah was confined to this one area, not able to go anywhere. There he was, life on pause. Why? Because he was out of God's will. You say there's no other time in Scripture when that happens. You ever wonder why it took the children of Israel to get 40 years through a wilderness that should have taken them two weeks to get through? They, and even God's preliminary route for the children of Israel was way down south and way up north. He had them circumvent the wilderness at first. They go way down and way up. The whole route would have taken them about two weeks. And what happens? They get to the promised land and they send the spies in. And the spies say, man, we were as grasshoppers in our own sight. We just, we don't know what we're going to do. There's no way. And they say these words. It would have been better for us to die in Egypt. Or it would have even been better for us to die in the wilderness. But now here we are right on the edge of what God has promised and we can't do anything about it. 
and they return to the same wilderness they just walked through and lived there 40 years. What happened? Their life got put on pause. They weren't making any progress. You know what wandering is? It's not progress. Wandering is what people do with Pokemon. <laughs> no progress being made. They're just aimlessly wandering. For 40 years, their life got put on pause. Friend, if you ever find yourself outside of God's will and you realize that nothing seems to be working out and all the things that you thought were going to be great turned out to not be helpful at all, maybe you're out of God's will. And it's at that moment when you need to say, like Jonah, man, I, I probably need to figure out what me and God got going on. You know it took Jonah three days? I personally believe he only had to be in there for about five seconds if he had just repented. But it was three days it took him. How long are you going to sit idle watching everybody else be promoted by God and you sit there out of God's will, life on pause, waiting for something to happen, what you need to do is be like Jonah and wise up on the third day and say, God, I need to get back to doing what I know you want me to do. His progress as he knew it completely stopped. Finally, and don't miss this, we're done. You say, there's no way. We're 30 minutes in and you're done. No, this is it, I promise. It's just there's 37 subpoints to this one point. But finally, we find it pleasing to blame others for our own problems. Look at verse 27. Balaam's pushing the, the donkey there. The donkey stops completely. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam. And you ever wonder why he had to use the donkey to speak to Balaam? It wasn't just earlier in this chapter, God and Balaam were on such speaking terms that he could just retreat to his chambers and find God's will. Now he's having to perform such miracles as opening a donkey's mouth and making him Dr. Doolittle so he can understand what God's will is for his life. And then the Bible says in verse 28, Balaam, what have I done unto thee, that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me, I, I would there were a sword in mine hand, for now would I kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, which, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? You know what the, the, the donkey's saying? Since when has this become my fault? You tell me how it's my fault. You're so far out of God's will, you can't see a, 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 an angel standing in your path. And there Balaam is, come on, you dumb donkey. And he even says, if I had a sword, I'd kill you right now. Now, one good indication that a Christian gets out of God's will is when they get overly aggressive to the brethren. So what do you mean? I say when a, when a Christian hears something from another brother and they go, I can't believe you said that. We're supposed to... We're supposed to be led by Christ, and I never see Christ do that in the Bible. 
Balaam's so aggressive and, and, and angry at everybody else right now. You know where the fault lied, who the fault lied with? Himself. And he's blaming everybody else for his mishaps and his problems and the fact that he can't get his donkey to walk down the path that he wants him to walk. And the donkey says, look, Balaam, I wish I could do what you want me to do. Have I ever disappointed you? But man, Balaam, I can't do this. This is your fault. Man, I've seen so many Christians lose friends over getting out of God's will. They'll say things like, well, they just they don't care about me anymore. Don't lose the friendships that you have. You ought to value good friendships. You ought to value good Christian relationships. Now, I saw this week a prayer request from someone that says, pray that we're able to replace godly influence, or replace secular influences in our life with godly influences. And yet some people have devalued so much the relationships within this church and other relationships, they're like, I won't even talk to them anymore. And we've got other people praying for friends like the one you're giving up. It's sad. We get out of God's will and we start blaming everybody else. They, well, their kids, they, 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 they prefer this. I can't believe they would do that. No. Stop blaming everyone else for your faults. And you get a little bit sideways with God and you get sideways with everybody. When we walk in the light as He is the light, we have peace and fellowship one with another. When we're right with God, we're able to be right with everybody else. But the flip side of that coin is when we're wrong with God, it's very difficult to get along with brethren. We, we blame others for our problems. You know, I wanted to close this sermon with... Uh, 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 an illustration about frivolous lawsuits. And how many of you have ever heard of the woman who sued McDonald's for uh, 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 hot coffee? How many of you have ever actually done research into that? You know she actually had a pretty good point? And you say, what do you mean? What do you mean? Okay, Starbucks serves their coffee at about 140 to 150 degrees. You know how McDonald's serves their coffee? 190. And, and the lady acquired third degree burns from the coffee being spilled on her. You know how much she sued McDonald's for? $800. You know why? Because that's how much her skin grafts cost. She wasn't out to get them. She actually had a pretty good point. But did you know there are some people that have stupid lawsuits? There was a man that sued Anheuser-Busch because he drank a six-pack and no, no pretty women showed up on a beach, and he felt as if it was false advertisement. <laughs> you think I'm lying? This guy actually, he actually sued Anheuser-Busch because he felt like they were promising something they weren't delivering. Another lady, or actually two, uh, two men who were part of the PETA organization, sued the Department of Wildlife and Research because they hit a deer with their own car. And they said the reason they hit the deer was because the DNR, or the Department of Research and Wildlife, they uh, had been trying to promote the growth of deer for hunting season. In other words, they were wanting more deer to be born and more deer to be around so people could hunt them. And that's the reason that they hit one with their car, is because the, the DNR was actually birthing more deer. 
They said this. This is so crazy. They said uh, their claim was that deer are running across freeways willy-nilly. Now, if you use a word like willy-nilly in a lawsuit, probably not a great lawsuit. But uh, deer are running across freeways willy-nilly to escape the bloodshed all around them. That's what they said. This is probably my favorite. I don't know. I like the PETA one pretty good. That's, that's pretty good to me, but this is probably my, my favorite. There was a man who watched Fear Factor religiously, and he sued NBC for one of the competitions on Fear Factor being too gross. In fact, the competition was people eating blended up rats. Okay, don't file a lawsuit on me. Don't be that person. This guy watched it faithfully, and and he saw that. It said it made him so nauseous that he was running into the bathroom, and his blood pressure uh, either skyrocketed or plummeted, so much so that he ran into a wall on the way to the restroom. So he sued them for something like $2.5 million to prove a point to all the TV networks that TV was getting too gross. Here's what's crazy. Have you ever seen Fear Factor? Every episode there's something on it that's gross. We look at these people and we say, that's so dumb. If he wants to not watch the TV, how about he just change the TV? We say, well, why would the, why would the PETA people discourage the, the, the growth of a population of deer? I thought that's what they wanted. Why would uh, somebody sue Anheuser-Busch if he realizes the chances of him eating a hot babe with a six-pack in his hand and his beer belly hanging out ain't going to happen? Why do we look at them and say, they're foolish? When oftentimes we have problems in our own heart, in our own life, and we press charges on everybody else. Look, God wants every child of His to be well within the limits of His will. Like a GPS that's going down the road. Hey, just turn right here. Hey, just proceed. Turn left here. But when we get out of God's will, it's almost like we're oblivious to the warning signs. As a Christian, I don't know how much I believe in coincidences. I don't know how much I believe in luck. If you truly believe God is sovereign, God probably has your life under control. And we step outside of His, His, His boundaries of His will. You know what? God isn't trying to hide His will from you. He's almost in the sky. Hey, go this way. For the children of Israel, He led them by a pillar of fire at night so it could clearly be seen, and a, a cloud by day so it could clearly be seen. There was no time in their life where God was not leading them. Christian, there's no time in your life where God doesn't want to lead you. We ignore the signs that He gives us. May we as a church begin to value God's opinion in our life so much that we look for signs and we don't say, oh, I can't believe that didn't work out. But we actually go to God and say, God, are you trying to show me something? May we have enough faith to acknowledge that if God is truly who the Bible says He is, He may send something down our way to throw up a red flag and say, hey, this isn't, this isn't good for you. This isn't right. It's such a sad story because this man at one point in his life was so closely in fellowship with God that he could just go to catch his will on a whim. 
and now an angel can't even get him in God's will. God has to use a donkey. Here's a question. What's going to be the donkey in your life? When the angel doesn't work, how much physical pain are you going to have to endure? How much emotional stress are you going to have to endure before you realize, hey, I need to find God's will again? How much are you going to delay God's plan for your life so that you realize, I'm not going anywhere. I'm a full-grown man and I can't hold down a job. My family hates me. My wife says she doesn't love me anymore. Why is it like this? Maybe we need to figure out what God's will is and start valuing it once again.